reading of scriptures, starting in Genesis 1-1, to the last verse of Revelation, scripture declares the glory of God. From the opening verses to the closing verses, God is set apart as sovereign, holy, righteous, just, and completely awesome. God is set apart as the one who is worthy of our praise. The whole of Scripture, from Genesis through Revelation, tells the story of God's plan to redeem a people for himself. It's a story of how a sovereign, holy, righteous, just, completely awesome God, reconciles people to himself. It is the story of how an indescribably glorious God himself makes a way for people who are in rebellion against him to have peace and enter into a relationship with him. It is the story of how this indescribable God who is both incomprehensibly just and inconceivably loving, will unite people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people under his banner for the glory of his name. And in between those first pages of Genesis and the last page of Revelation, we find our story as well. We come to understand why we are the way we are. The sin nature within us that makes us truly enemies of God. And the incredible grace that I cannot even begin to wrap my head around. That God, before time began, purposed his son to save us. That while we were still sinners in rebellion against God, He would send His Son, Jesus, to die for my sins. Then God, according to His intended purpose, would raise Jesus from the dead so that we too would have the promise of eternal life in Christ Jesus. That we would be able to spend eternity with God. And it was all God's purpose from the start. And make no mistake, it is all for God's glory. Our passage today is going to come out of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, with John already so elegantly gave us a word on. I almost feel like I didn't need to preach because then Paul came in with the second half of my sermon and so I'm really done already and you can just go home. Um, but nonetheless, I'm hoping to make three points to you today. First, that we should praise God for his glorious grace. These are three encouragements to you. To praise God for his glorious grace. To praise God for his glorious salvation and to praise God for his glorious promise. So let's go ahead and read our passage from Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the richness, to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, 
which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you <laughs> give us your scripture that so clearly points us to how worthy you are. How worthy you are of our praise. And truly, you are the one who is worthy of all honor and glory and majesty and might. And that there is none like you. Brother, would you use this word today? Would you soften our heart that we might receive the truth of your word? Lord, would you help me to preach this word well? That you might be lifted up and glorified and honored and that people might leave today looking to you as the one who is worthy of all glory and honor. May your name be made much of today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage today opens with the words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. These opening words really set the tone for the whole passage. Really, they set the tone for the whole letter of Ephesians. God is worthy of your praise. Bless God. Bless God, who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Bless God, who is your maker, and who, according to Psalm 139, knew you in your mother's womb. He knit you together. He knew the numbers of your days they were written in his book before there was one of them. Bless God, who is the Alpha and the Omega. Bless God, who opens the eyes of the blind, who heals the sick, who joins the lonely and the homeless to a family. Bless God, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The psalmist writes in chapter 8, What is man that you should know him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And while that is a true statement, Ephesians resounds with the truth and the hope that in Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You are known by God. And what are those spiritual blessings? Well, I don't know what all of them might be. I think there's a lot of mystery still. But I do know that the first one, the first blessing we have in the spiritual in the heaven, spiritual blessings that we have in the heavenly places, the first one is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who fills us. And as we'll find out a little later in the sermon, is the guarantee of eternal life. God's seal upon us. And, and that's no small thing. 
that we as believers have the guarantee of eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that our future home is a future home of imperishable glory. We have something we look forward to. And the Holy Spirit is the seal of that. These are reasons to bless God. What other faith do you know has that certainty to it? That level of hope that is obtainable, that you know, that you know, that you know, that you are loved by God. I've studied many religions, and none of them can tell me that. None of them. In the end, it's all a roll of the dice. I have a sure faith. I am sealed. It is a guarantee through the Holy Spirit. We have sure reasons to bless God. There are sure reasons to praise God for His glorious grace. For what have we done to deserve the grace that God pours out upon us? I would offer to you nothing. In fact, we have followed after Adam. We have sinned against God like Adam. We have chosen to be our own gods. And that puts us in direct opposition to the one true living God. There can be only one holy, righteous, living God. And it's not us. There can be only one who is worthy of all glory, and that is Yahweh. The one true living God. Now from the beginning... Praising God is what God intended. We were created, as was all of creation, to love God and to worship Him. The Westminster Catechism, the shorter catechism, written 370 years ago, opens up with a question. It says, what is the chief end of man? The shorter answer to that is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the opening statement of the catechism. To glorify God. And Scripture after Scripture supports that this is true. The catechism lists a whole bunch of them. It starts with Psalm 86.9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and glorify your name. Isaiah 60, 21. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. That's God saying that. Romans eleven thirty six. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you were, brought, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. The problem is that although God is worthy to receive our glory and honor and power, we, whom He created, do not give Him that glory, and that honor. And in fact, we want that power. On our best days, we want to share the glory and the honor with God. And you can imagine where it is on our worst days. 
it has been a problem since the beginning. God created Adam and Eve to be in relationship with Him. And through that relationship, to glorify Him. But the serpent tempted them with the ability to be like God. To share in that power, that glory, that honor. And they immediately grasped at the opportunity. Later, the law would come. God would again show His chosen ones a way to be in relationship with Him. He would reveal His glory to them through the plagues in Egypt, through the parting of the Red Sea, by leading them to the pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. In Mount Sinai, they would hear His voice and see the fire and the smoke on the mountain and experience His presence. A presence that terrified them. But within a month, they would have forgotten this. And they would immediately turn to giving, from giving glory to God to giving glory to an image that they had created with their own hands. And they would praise it for getting them out of Egypt. Again and again, God's people would reject the law and they would reject God. They would reject Him to worship the gods of the lands that are around them. God would send His prophets to warn them. And he would, they would reject the prophets even as they rejected God. If the prophet continued to speak, he'd kill the prophet. God sent the people into exile and then 70 years brought them back and yet they slowly drifted over time. Not into worshiping the gods of the land, but now really to glorifying themselves as followers of the law. That they could do this if they just worked hard enough. They could follow the law. They could be righteous enough. They could earn God's approval and earn their way into heaven. Yet, again and again, their best attempts failed. And as hard as they tried, they could never live perfectly under the law. Finally, God sent His Son. Jesus, who came to earth to live as a man. He sent His Son to live a perfect life on behalf of others. Because you and I could not live a perfect life. Jesus did no wrong. He was without sin. Yet he came to earth to bear the sins of man. That is, at the cross, God placed the sin of all believers onto Jesus. Then he poured out his wrath against sin. All the wrath stored up and executed on His Son till there was no more wrath and Jesus was dead. Jesus died to pay for our sin. For your sin. For my sin. He did that because you and I couldn't pay for our sin. Then He was buried and after three days in the grave, God raised Jesus from the dead. And now He is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven and will at the appointed time return. And we shall be raised to glory with Him. Amen. Now some people will hear this message and think, okay, so after Adam and Eve messed up in that garden thing, God did this plan A deal, and that was the law. We messed up the first thing, the original plan. So, so the next plan, plan A, to fix the problem was to give the law. Well, that didn't work so well. God should have thought that out a little better. And so then, 
he had to come up with a better idea. And that was plan B. And that was this guy, Jesus, who was going to take care of all the problems of the world. And all we had to do is, you know, believe in him and, and everything be cool. Well, in a sense, that is an understandable conclusion you might come to if you just kind of heard the story of somebody telling it. It might seem psychological for us who are finite creatures. But we serve an infinite God. And so, Scripture, if you read through Scripture, this would not be the conclusion of Scripture. And that's what we see in our passage. Jesus was never plan B. In fact, he wasn't even the plan A to fix the problem. Jesus was always the plan. Period. That's what we learn out of Ephesians today. Look at Ephesians 1.4. It says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Jesus was not a plan A or plan B. Quite the opposite. Jesus was always the only plan God had to redeem men. And the fact that he would need to redeem men was not something that struck him by surprise all of a sudden when Adam failed. Before the foundations of the earth. Before the earth was created. God had already decided that Jesus would be our mediator. Do you understand that? It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a plan B. It was always the plan. Jesus was the only plan from the beginning. What's more, from before the foundations of the earth, God in love predestined us. That is, He chose us and set us apart. He adopted us into His family through Jesus. I think we have a slide here. So I want you to notice the order of events in this passage. Love. Well, maybe we don't have a slide. In any case, let me go back and, and I'll read that passage for you. That in love, this is verse 4, end of verse 4, in love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So what comes first in that setup? Love. You weren't predestined or set apart and then God decided to love you. That's not how this works. God loved you. And so He set you apart. And then before the foundations of the earth, you were adopted in the realities of heaven. So think of this. Love here is a... How is that being used? You grammar friends. How is that being used? Okay? And it is a present tense. In this case, love is present tense. In love. Thank you, you're right. It is the object of the preposition. In love. It is a present tense here. Which means it is an ongoing love. Do you understand that? From before the foundations of the earth, God loved you, is loving you, will continue to love you until there is to the end of things which there is none. Because God is infinite. We, as believers, experience this ongoing love of God. And it is the same love by which He chose us from the beginning. Predestined follows out of that. It flows out of that love. 
that God has for us. And it is a completed action. It is a past tense. You were predestined. It is done. It is finished. It is completed. God has set it in place. The action of the predestination was adoption into God's family. Your adoption flows out of love. It flows out of an ongoing love that God has for you and continues to have for you and will continue to have for you. He has set His love upon you and adopted you. Let that sink in for a moment. He has adopted you because He loves you. He has brought you into His royal family. He chose to do this before the foundations of the earth. And what did they do to deserve it? Nothing. It was by grace. God's unmerited favor towards you. His love extended towards you. And let it turn you to praise God for His glorious grace. Now let me take just a minute to to talk to you about that adoption. As some of you may know, adoption is not really historically a Jewish thing. It doesn't exist, really, in the Jewish culture of that time. It was a Greek and a Roman thing. To be adopted under Roman law, or in particular, was a big deal. Why? Well, the adoption law, or adoption by law, created a stronger bond between that adopted child than the blood child, than a child out of my own marriage. I could disown the child out of my own marriage. I could not disown an adopted child. I cannot disinherit an adopted child. Paul gives us that picture very clearly. You have been adopted into the family of God, into his royal house, and it cannot be undone. Period. What God has done cannot be undone. But why? Why is man? What is man? That you should know him and be mindful of him. Why would God do this? We're a mess. Really, we're a mess. Paul explains our condition in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, I think we have the slide for Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Catch it here. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who we are. Why would God, who has every right as the sovereign ruler of the earth, in His righteous justice, why would He not destroy us for our absolute rejection of His ways. Our absolute denial of His Lordship. And in fact, quite often, our complete rejection of His existence. Why would He choose us? Why would He predestine us? to receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, why would He extend love to us and adopt us into His royal family? There is a simple answer, and it's unfathomable. It's called grace. It's just grace. As Toby faithfully presented to us two weeks ago, grace, 
God completely undeserved, unearned, unmerited, unwarranted, absolutely free gift. It is because of his boundless love, his generous mercy, that he would extend grace to you and to me. It is the very nature of God to be loving and merciful and compassionate to those who do not deserve it. That should turn us to praise of His glorious grace. We are the recipients of that. But why? What is the point of the grace that is extended to us? It is so that we are turned to praise God. It should turn our hearts to praising God. When the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see the darkness of your soul, the darkness of your situation, where you were, it is why I think telling your testimony is so important. Not just for the hearer, but for you, for your very own soul. To remember where you once were. What you came out of. What God delivered you from. The darkness that you were in. Even if you were six when you got saved. In love, He predestined us for adoption. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He blessed us in the Beloved. Friends, Jesus was not just an afterthought. Your salvation was not just an afterthought. It is very much the will of God, what God purposed, what God intended, what God set in motion before the foundations of the earth, before it began. And God did these things to make evident to you and to me and a watching world His glorious grace so that we would be turned to praise. Praise to a glorious God who is the giver of that good gift. And so let me ask you, does God's glorious grace move you to praise? Does God's Grace move you to tell others about what He has done for you. About the change that has occurred in your life. About what Jesus Christ did on your behalf. Does grace move you to do that? Does, does the realization of what has occurred on your behalf cause you to praise Him? Does it cause you to tell others? Do your neighbors know how much God's grace has changed your life? Do your friends know how much God's grace has changed your life? How about your extended family? If you were to ask others, friends, people who know you, hey, tell me, what do you see me get excited about? Would it be God? Would it be the finished work of Jesus Christ in your life? Would it be your salvation? Would it be His glorious grace? What do your friends see you praise? And this isn't a guilt trip. I don't mean to, to do that in any way, any shape, any form, in any sense today but it should cause us to examine our lives. Because what we love is what we praise. What we think of most highly is what we will give glory to. That which has our heart is what we will lift up for others to see. Because it's worthy of being seen. So that's a challenge to you. I want to encourage you to do a personal survey this week of those things. Go on your Facebook. Go on your blog posts. 
listen to yourself when you're talking to others around the water cooler. What are you giving glory to? What are you lifting up as worthy for their attention? Could you be convicted in a court of law if someone said, this person has been caught praising God and giving him glory for every facet of their life? Could you be convicted of wholehearted praise to God? I'm not sure I could, but I'm standing here with you. There are lots of things I praise. I love good steak. And anybody who's around me knows that. There's a lot of things I really like and enjoy. But I hope that when you know me as a full person and you hang out with me, that somewhere in there I make very clear to you that God is worthy of glory for what he's done in my life. I hope as a consistent picture of my life, it is God that is most glorified. And if it is not, do tell me because I need to change the way I'm living. You're not alone in this. You're not alone. And this is really when we think of it, are we glorifying God for, for what he has done This is where Paul is headed next in our passage. It's the next point that Paul wants to drive home. The glorious praise that God is worthy of, the grace that God extended us through Jesus Christ was not without purpose. It was most assuredly God's will to redeem you. That grace was going somewhere. And so he gives us another reason to praise Another thing that people should see, he writes in verses 7 through 11, in him we have redemption through his blood according to the forgiveness of our trespasses. Correction, let me read that again. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight according to the purpose he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. To put it in context, this passage is a subset of the major idea of blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the redemption that we have in and through Jesus Christ is one more reason for us to bless God. One reason, as we will see, to praise God. So let's take a minute and look at that redemption that we have in Christ. First, what is redemption? Well, if you have a coupon and you go to the grocery store and you give it to the cashier, something happens. You get money back. Or maybe it's a buy one, get one free. But you get something in return. You redeem something. Well, in the Old Testament, it deals more with setting people free. So if, if you were captured by an enemy or slave traders, your closest male relative was responsible to do one of two things. Either buy you back or go rescue you. And we see in Genesis 14, Abraham goes and rescues Lot and his family after they've been caught by the kings that came against Sodom. He gets rescued. He's redeemed out of slavery. He's brought back. We see it with what God does in chapter 15, 1 through 15, the first 15 chapters of Exodus. As God rescues an enslaved people out of Egypt, God redeems his people for himself, for his purposes, and for his glory. So to make this a little more personal for you, you and I were slaves. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that we were slaves to sin and lawlessness. Colossians 1 reminds us 
that we were in the domain of darkness. God sent his son, Jesus, to rescue and to deliver us from that domain of darkness, to redeem us. Those whom he had set his love upon, those whom he had adopted, he also delivered out of darkness. He redeemed them. God, through Jesus, redeemed us, transferring us out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. Though we were sons of disobedience, children of wrath, deserving of death, God being rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. God sent his son to redeem us through his blood. Jesus came to earth and lived that perfect life in full accordance with the law. Because if he had not, we wouldn't. Because you and I did not live a perfect life according to the law. We deserve death. Romans 3.23 makes it really clear. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin are death. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son to live a perfect life for us. Still, our sin had to be paid for. God is a just God. Sin can't go unpunished. And so Jesus at the cross had to, willingly and obediently, he took our sin upon himself. And God poured his wrath out against that sin until Jesus was dead. And sin, the wrath of God, was, was finished. It was completely exhausted. Our sin was paid for. See, that had to happen because God cannot ignore sin. He wouldn't be just if he did. He can't be just loving, only loving. Because if he did, if he swept our sin under the carpet, if he ignored it, he wouldn't be God anymore because he wouldn't be perfectly righteous. He wouldn't be perfectly just. God had to pour out his wrath for sin. And that's why Jesus came. He took it upon himself. It amazes me. <laughs> it moves me that someone would do that for us. So, once God has sent his son to pay for our price, when he did that, God very intentionally turned his back on his son. When, when he poured out his wrath on him, when Christ took that sin upon himself, God literally turned his back on his son. He did that for us. Jesus took that, that sin, that took the wrath that was reserved for us. It was stored up for us as believers. And he poured it out. God poured out his wrath on his son until he was dead. Jesus, by doing that, made a way for us to be adopted. He made a way for us to be reconciled to God, to be placed in right relationship with God because our sin had to be paid. God, though, in doing that, did something else. This is really cool. God took our sin, our, our, after having taken our sin and placing it on Christ, he took Christ's righteousness and put it in the equivalent of a trust fund. Think of it that way. It's, a, it's an easy way for us to think about it. It goes, the righteousness of Christ went into an account, a trust fund. Right? And a trust fund is put by like a parent or someone like that, is put into an account, and it's in waiting until 
someone comes of age. So Ethan, for instance, might have, I might have set a trust fund for him, and then when he turns 21, what's in that trust fund might be his. He's only 17 now. He can't access it. There's a guardian over it, maybe a lawyer or a bank or something. He can't have that money. He can't have property or stocks or whatever's in that account until he turns 21. When, it, when he does, when he turns 21, all of that would, that would be in the trust fund is transferred over to him. The money, as if he earned it, it's his. The property, as if he purchased it, it's his. The same thing happens with the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ went into this trust fund, if you will. And when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it was like you coming of age. And the righteousness that you didn't earn suddenly became yours. As if you had done it. And you walk now and live in that righteousness. And when God looks at you, what he sees is the righteousness of his son. That's the benefit of it. That's a reason to plead, to praise God. To praise God for what he has done. He is worthy of your glory. Let me give you one more. When you, if you, oh, let me put it this way. When the Pats win Super Bowl 52. All right? Are we set now? When this, say that, that you're there, you're at the stadium, and who comes running over but Tom Brady? And he rips off his jersey and he hands it to you. You're like, woohoo! Because that's pretty cool. And you throw Tom Brady's jersey on. And you're like, man, I am the man. I won the Super Bowl. No, you idiot. You didn't win the Super Bowl. Tom Brady and the Patriots won the Super Bowl. It would be foolish. Your friends would look at you like you were a moron if you walked around because you had Tom Brady's jersey on and said, I did it. What? Isn't it kind of foolish that we wear God's jersey, Jesus' jersey, and say, I did it. It would be just as foolish. Christ did it. And you have the wonderful, amazing, glorious privilege of wearing Christ's jersey. And when God looks at you, He does see His Son. He does see you as part of that team. He sees you as his beloved. But I want you to know something. If you were to ask Tom Brady, if you're out there and all the crowd's going, Tom, 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 because they love him and he's wonderful and he's getting to put on his sixth ring. The one thing that Tom Brady regularly does is turn back around and give credit. To, to Belichick, doesn't he? Because Belichick was the, the maker of the plans. He was the one who had the big picture from day one. This is what we're going to do. And he wrote out the plans before there was even a game. And he put all the strategies into motion before the game even began. And so when Jesus gets praised, what does he do? He says, Thank you, um, but you need to give the praise to my Father. So Jesus is praised and glorified, and he turns right around and says, all in glory to God the Father. And so you and I should do likewise. As we wear the jersey of Christ, shouldn't we be praising God the Father, who is the giver of all good gifts? including the Holy Spirit in us that seals us for eternal life, the inheritance that we have. That is a good and gracious gift we have in Him. And so, let me challenge you as we bring up the worship team. Who do you praise? Who do you give glory to? Whose jersey are you wearing 
And who gets the praise for that? Who gets it? So I want to throw up a slide here real quick and give you five things to challenge you with. Five practical ways, albeit difficult things, this week to test yourself and to put you on a path for praising God. First, if you find that you're slow to praise God, then I want to recommend you to pray. Ask Him to give you eyes to see His glory, to work out His redemptive work. That He would see what's going on around you and that He would give you a heart of excitement for it. And that that excitement then turn you to praise. This week, look at your Facebook. Examine it. What do you praise the most? Is it God? And if not, then what is it that you're praising? Because we are created to praise, and we will praise what we love most. Ask your friends. What do they see you get excited about most? What things do they hear you speak of with the most expectation? Does any of that reflect God? And if not, what does it reflect, and how can you change that? How can you start digging into God's Word, spending time in prayer, and really being grateful for what God has done and letting that turn to praise. Finally, find one thing this week, one thing each day to praise God for. That's seven days. If you do it for 21, it becomes a habit. So start with seven. One thing each day to praise God for. Amen? Amen.